Hi, Vicky. Hi, Shane. All these questions are usually kind of silly, but I got a, a little bit of a weird one for you. Uh, oh <laughs> what are some fond or, or not so fond memories or experience if you had on farms or related to farming? <laughs> well, I didn't have like a ton of farm experience in my life so far. In the fall, we went to, I did my first, maybe second corn maze. Oh, yeah, sure. yeah. We I did it with my husband and my daughter, and it was after like a long day. Like we had done a hayride, and we pet all the animals, and we did all of the things. So I was already really tired and like wind blown and like sun chapped or like all of the things that you could be. So we're running around in this corn maze, which did not seem very challenging when we rolled up because the corn was like. I could see over the top of the corn. So I was like, what kind of corn maze is this even? Okay. But then I'm tired and we get in w- into it with like a very stubborn and opinionated five-year-old <laughs> who knows the way, but also you can't see her over the top of the corn. <laughs> so it was like, I thought we were we were never going to get out. I was just trudging along. It was oh. not good, but we got out. Here we are. I feel like so that's, that's a, good. That's- I feel like that's a way that a lot of folks uh, in our point in life and in mm-hmm. the region, especially in which we live, experience farms these days. It's yeah. cord bases, pumpkin patches, yeah, for better just or like for worse. Being too tired and just like terror. I don't know. It just feels like a lot. Like yeah. Olivia Thinking it was a good idea at the time. And then yeah. it's just like, why did we actually decide to do this? Yeah, it's like Olivia, Olivia lives in the corn now. I'm not sure. <laughs> but... Yeah, so that's me. Oh my gosh! Well, so I, I, so I grew up in very rural Pennsylvania. Rural Penn. I, I said it before you <laughs> did. I could see you winding up. Darn to it. it! You saw me winding up. Okay. Yeah, uh, and um, my my weirdly mine has a little bit of a children of the corn relation as well. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, was like a child of the corn, but yeah, I I used to go to this uh, summer camp. Um, in 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 the area where I'm from, yeah. and it was very kind of low key, low stakes, very informal type mm-hmm. deal. Uh, but there was a there's I don't know from adolescence to seventeen, eighteen year olds or something like that, and we would do mm-hmm. uh, kind of adventure activities and all sorts of stuff, and there was leadership things and all that jazz. Um, but yeah. one of the things that the older kids always like to do to the younger kids was. Um, just scare the absolute crap out of them uh, on day one or two of the camp. And so uh basically we'd go on a, the younger kids would go on a nighttime walk through the cornfields and uh, the older kids would essentially do a reenactment of children of the corn. And because <laughs> it was uh, kids and boys, I don't know. It was yeah, just, just, it was terrible. like, it was, it was, there was nothing. Um, it was, I don't know, harmless fun. I think, but they were just, they were just, they yell at you. It was essentially like a haunted hayride almost, except yeah. probably more terrifying. But, uh, but yeah, that's uh, <laughs> some of the memories I have. I have. <laughs> Wait, so did the adults in the situation like know this was going to happen? I guess they anticipated it, right? Unclear, probably, but I don't I don't, I don't know. It's These are memories that come in spurts where I go, "Oh, right. that was weird." Okay. <laughs> Oh, that's what happened to me. That's what happened. That's why I am the way I am. (laughs) (laughs) 
Science is fascinating. But don't just take my word for it. Join us as we hear stories from scientists for everyone. I'm Shane Hanlon. And I'm Vicki Thompson. And this is Third Pod from the Sun. So, Vicky, uh, we we are talking farms and crops today, uh, not only to share our uh, sometimes personal ill-fated corn and farm experiences, <laughs> but to hear some amazing work that folks are doing around food security. Oh, so food security. I feel like I feel like we would have been in our stories pretty secure in our cornfields, if need be, right? Like if I were ne- to have never made it out. Oh, I mean, it is a f- yeah, I don't know. I don't know if I love it. eating raw corn. Um, oh, I could be like, yeah. I don't know how to. Do you know the corn kid on TikTok? It's corn. Oh, yeah. He might be cool with it. I've never really loved <laughs> corn. We are we are getting off topic. Way off track. Yeah. So what we're actually talking about today is we're going to hear from a NASA scientist who uses satellites to solve problems, including food security, all around the world. Our interviewer was Ashley Hamer. So my name is Chris Justice. I'm a professor in the Department of Geographical Sciences, University of Maryland. Nice. And uh, what what does that entail? So I do research um, on various aspects of land use change using satellite Earth observations with a current emphasis on global agriculture, food security, but previously on other topics, including including fire. Um, my research over the years has been supported by NASA, and I contribute to NASA's Earth Science Program. As a university professor, training the next generation of scientists at the graduate and undergraduate level is also a major part of what I do. And as I've always been involved in international science programs, um, working with international colleagues on common global problems. What does it involve? Um, Communicating with people, uh, doing my own research, uh, writing papers, analysis, getting getting results out and uh, sharing them with the broader community. Spend quite a bit of time uh, translating science results into uh, digestible material for public and for policymaking community. At the moment, we're involved in a an applied sciences program uh, with NASA on agriculture, it's, agri- it's NASA's agricultural program called Harvest. This is taking NASA's satellite data and the science that's been developed around that and making it useful for societal benefit. The website is nasaharvest.org and um, that's a good place to go look and see what we're doing. There's lots of information. Working on food security in Africa, working on, as I said, the, the crop production in Ukraine, Uh, working on um, new methods for um, extracting information from satellites on crop production and yield, and uh, looking at the major producing countries around the world, the the grain producers for the commodity crops, and looking at shortages and if there's drought and if there are problems in in, uh, agricultural production, and then what the impacts are on the global market and the impacts on supply chains that we've been experiencing. I think that might surprise some people that NASA is interested in agriculture. Could you talk more about that? Why why NASA is involved with that? Well, there's a long history history of of NASA in, involved in agriculture. The uh, 
The first satellite that was put up was the Landsat program. Landsat was launched in 1972. And one of the rationales and justifications for that was looking at agriculture. So there's been a program of agricultural remote sensing for a long time uh, run by NASA, but recently it's, uh, it's increased and they've uh, developed a new program aimed at looking at global food security and uh, just recently domestic agriculture. It's really the only way of figuring out what's going on and trying to give some early advance notice of, of uh, drought and sort of food security issues in parts of the world with crash don't have, perhaps don't have the same monitoring systems that we do here in the US. Nice. Yeah, that's really important. So, so backing up, um, what is it that drew you to science originally? So I got my, I was a, a geography major uh, in the UK and I got my PhD uh, using Landsat data at the time that it started to become available, um, just as digital data was starting to become available. Initially, Landsat was photographic products that were distributed. Uh, I had training in uh, air photo interpretation through the university that I was working there. They had a, uh, a project uh, using a British rocket that um, took photographs as it descended uh, we worked in Argentina and Australia, and I applied to be a research assistant, got really excited about it, enjoyed it. And then I was fortunate enough to meet um, a colleague of mine now that, who was visiting the UK from NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. His name was Jim Tucker, and he encouraged me to apply for a National Research Council postdoc, which I did. And I went out to Goddard Space Flight Center at a time when satellite day was really starting to get used. And so... Um, that was the beginning. When I finished my, um, my time at Goddard, when my visa expired, I went back to Europe. I worked for European Space Agency in Frascati, and they were uh, developing uh, a capability to distribute uh, Landsat data themselves. And I worked there for three years and then came back to Goddard 1983 to work on the NOAA advanced very high resolution radiometer, which was an operational weather satellite, but we started to use it for um, Earth observation, looking at the land surface. And uh, Jim Tucker started to work uh, on this, uh, this operational course resolution satellite. But the unique thing about that was that it had daily observations at the global scale. And so we put together a group of researchers, uh, Jim Tucker, Brent Holben, Joram Kaufman, Eric Vermoot, and uh, we started to use these daily global observations for looking at the surface, and we called the group the Global Inventory Modeling and Monitoring Studies Group, Jim's group, and Jim Tucker was the uh, originator, and we grew this into a core of researchers from around the world and started what is now become known as time series land remote sensing, and it was grounded in the use of uh, an index which Jim Tucker had developed called the Normalized Difference Vegetation Index, which allowed you to look at vegetation condition around the world. And so this was the start of this global Earth observation program that uh, I've been working on since that time. Wow. So this group really pioneered the thing that you're that you're currently working on. Yeah, it was really an exciting time. And a lot of people were uh, involved in that, Not certainly not just me. And it's grown into a, a much bigger program. So when NASA embarked on mission to planet Earth, 
which was a program to start getting coordinated observations for the Earth's surface, um, which, which became the Earth Observing System, EOS, I was invited to join an instrument team to develop something better and more scientific than the operational weather satellite um, system that we were using, led by um, Vince Salmonson, who was the division head at uh, Goddard at that time. I, I was involved in putting together the requirements for the land community and then negotiating with the other disciplines on which of those get, got accepted onto the mission. So having had the experience on, with Landsat and this, uh, this weather satellite, th my vision was to put together a global um, coverage on a daily basis with the scientific capability that Landsat offered and then add some additional uh, spectral bands for measuring fire and thermal, thermal uh, land surface temperature. And that was the beginning of the, what we call now the, the moderate resolution imaging spectrometer, the MODIS instrument, um, which, which was uh, put up in space. I think one of my biggest achievements was to put on that instrument uh, two spectral bands with a spatial resolution, that's the sort of the size of the smallest thing you can see, of 250 meters, which at that time really pushed the envelope. There was a lot of resistance to that in terms of data volume, global data, every day for 250 meters. Of course, that was at a time when computers were a lot more challenged by volumes of data than they are now. The capability now for monitoring the Earth's surface is pretty much built on that. And that's, uh, that was the launch of these two MODIS instruments, Terra and Aqua, morning and afternoon overpasses, 1999-2002. So th those instruments were planned for a five-year uh, life, but remarkably, 20 years later, they're still operating, which is a testament to the quality of the engineering. And of course, with that length of time period, we've been able to look at changes on the land surface. And it's, uh, it's been a, a, a major success for, for the NASA program. So working with um, two people, Louis Giglio, Yoram Kaufman, who's also no longer with us, we created um, what's called the MODIS Active Fire product, which detects fires as they're burning and is still used today by agencies around the world to look at the location of fires, including uh, the U.S. Forest Service. We got a call from the U.S. Forest Service to say, we hear we've got a new instrument that can measure fire. Can we get the data? And I said, well, the trouble is we can't process it very quickly. So you can have it in three months. And they said, well, that's no use to anybody. You know, we want to know where the fires are today, right now, so we can actually do something about it. And so we made the case for a rapid response system uh, that would give the satellite data, process it within two hours. And that's turned into a capability which still exists um, called the Land Atmosphere Near Real Time Capability for EOS, LANCE. And so that was, a, that was another large success, I think, of the NASA program. Wow. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, that is a huge, very impressive career. My goodness. So, but before that, well, for, first, uh, I don't know if you mentioned, what, what was your PhD in? Geography. Oh, wow. Okay. I've always been interested in geography. It wasn't my best subject. But it was the one I was most interested in. And, and I would say for any, um, any sort of young person that wants to get into science, you know, you really have to 
find the thing that interests you the most and then work hard at that and uh, you'll find that sort of doors open. Yeah, who, who would have known that an interest in geography could lead you to doing, doing all of this? It's amazing. What about uh, the, the thing that you're most proud of? Well, I think that, as I said, I, th- I think putting those, uh, those spectral bands, uh, those 250 meter bands on the Modis instrument was a real game changer for the community and really made a huge difference. And that's, I'm proud of that. And the... And actually, let's, let's, uh, so 250 meters, that's about like two and a half Olympic swimming pools. That's, um, what, what is well, that? Well, you do a hundred meter to? length. You, sure, you sure. <laughs> um, so but, this, but, it's uh, still pretty coarse, but if you're looking at the world every day, yeah. you know, and collecting all of that data is still a lot, but of course the technology has changed completely. So now people are using data from the, once they got the acquisition, collecting the data, enough data and dealing with the data processing data management, people are now using 30 meter data and 20 meter data to do the same global work, but it's the same principles and the same processes, but just going finer and finer. Of course, now with commercial satellites, you can get data at half a meter, you know, and make it available. But again, that's, that's commercial. So it's not, widely accessible. NASA has a program for purchasing some of that high resolution data, but uh, part of the team that I work on now is using um, using those data the uh, from Planet, which is one of the commercial data providers, uh, to look at and do an assessment in real time of the agricultural conditions in Ukraine. And uh, that's proving to be extremely helpful for the uh, for the Ukrainian government. Oh, that's important. Yeah. Working with the Ministry of Agriculture. So because you need fine resolution data for looking at the detail. The coarser resolution data looks at changes in condition, but if you're trying to map the individual fields and do the acreage estimates for for crops, you need finer resolution data. So working down at three meters and less and uh, combining that with 10 meter data from the Europeans and 20 meter data from Landsat, then you've got that, that global monitoring system where you have daily coverage and then um, every two or three days, you get full resolution coverage. Yeah, that's good. That's good. Uh, what is your favorite place to do science? In the field, definitely. Mm-hmm. You know, do the data collection. It's hard work, but it's uh, you really get to understand what's going on. Yeah, you got to make that comparison between the uh, the satellite data and the and the boots what's on, the, on ground, the ground. Like you said. Yeah, yep. and then you can yep. do that both for the validation accuracy assessment of the satellite data but also then to train the sort of machine learning approaches to, uh, to classify the data or to, um, to identify the features that you're really looking for. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so you use a lot of machine learning in this too. Yes. Yeah. And have, and have for many, many years. You're, you're mentioning how uh, hard it was back in the day to collect that much, you know, with the 250 meters. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. To collect that much data. And now we have so much more, but you just need to wade through it and find a way to do that. Exactly. And the cloud computing really helps. So it means that you have access to uh, large volumes of data and um, sort of high capability computing. Whereas back in the day, you know, there just wasn't that capability at all. And now it's all digital. And, you know, what used to be in a, a huge warehouse full of computers is now pretty much uh, in your 
underneath your desk. Yeah. Or on your laptop. Yeah, things really change. Things, yeah, change. And it just shows you how old I am. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you made a lot of that happen, it sounds like, too. Like Some, you, you, but yeah. as I said, you know, it's not on me. It was, a, it was a group effort and a lot of people involved and a lot of people deserve the credit. I just happened to be in the right place at the right time. Yeah, well, it's great. Mm -hmm. So outside of your job, if you could be doing anything outside of the sciences, what would that be? I would probably work for a non-government organization looking at ways to help people live more sustainably uh, in terms without degrading the environment. And that's, you know, that's something that I believe in that we need to we need to try to get that sort of working now whether it's because of climate change or because of there's now 8 billion people on the planet as of this week. So I understand. Oh, really? Yeah. This week. So we've got a lot of people that need feeding and we've got a lot of, uh, of land that then will be used for that. So how do we, how do we sustain your know, human life while without degrading the environment? And it's something that we've been talking about for many years, but we're not doing very much. So I think the non-government organizations probably are the most effective at, sort of making that happen, at least lobbying for that to happen. That's very related to, you know, land monitoring. Well, great. Thank you so much for talking with me. You, you have had uh, an amazing career, and I think people will be really interested in hearing about I it. I feel very fortunate, actually. Very lucky. And <laughs> Wonderful. I think that's something that I can be grateful for. So really, I think that finding ways to keep everyone on Earth fed is so important. It's just going to get more and more important as we move forward. Yeah, I I agree. Um, and thinking about food and farming and crops mm -hmm. in this way is uh, probably a much better use of time than some, I don't know, in my case, some backwoods Children of the Corn reenactment. <laughs> <laughs> and I want to thank Chris for sharing his work with us. All right, folks. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Special thanks to Ashley Hamer for conducting the interview and to NASA for sponsoring this series. This episode was produced by Jason Rodriguez and me with audio engineering from Colin Warren. Artwork by Karen Romano Young. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review us. And you can find new episodes in your favorite podcasting app or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all. And we'll see you next week. So I feel like since you put the Santa hat on Tacoma, then you're going to have to always, like, I feel like you should just have like a rotating hat. I can do that. Yeah, I have a lot of hats. Yeah, I'm a hat person. So I'll... Uh, in the new year, I'll put my HU tassel cap that I got on him. Um, nice. We'll keep that on him for the winter. And then, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll give him some, like, trucker hats and yeah. all sorts of different stuff. Did you call it a tassel hat? Tassel cap. Tassel cap? Tassel? It is tassel, isn't it? Yeah, I would, it is I would call it a pom-pom hat. I call it – so I'm – yeah, so I, it's – should be tassel. I say tassel. But yeah, I say tassel. tassel. Um, I mean, oh. a pom -pom. I was just making sure I think, we're talking about the same thing. I think it's a, yeah, I wonder if that's the regional. What is. Yeah, there must be a regional thing about it because, yeah, I've heard pom pom too. Um, knit, knit. Yeah, I don't know why I call it tassel. No, oh, it's good.